0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Episode 19 of Everything Compliance, the only roundtable podcast in the compliance industry. It consists of Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, Vice President at Affiliated Monitors, Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quarterly Compliance in London, and Michael Volkoff from the Volkoff Law Group. Every episode, we take a deep dive into four or five compliance-related topics. This week, we consider the Uber in Glow in London, from Jonathan's perspective, as having litigated such an issue. Jay Rosen takes a look at the beginnings of the NCAA basketball shoe pay-for-play scandal which erupted last week. Matt Kelly considers the compliance aspects from the Equifax data breach. Mike Volkoff is on assignment this week, so I step into his shoes to consider the Telia Company FCPA Enforcement Action, which was the highest grossing fine and penalty in FCPA history ever. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back for another episode of Everything Compliance, the only roundtable podcast in compliance. This week we have Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitors, and from across the pond, Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan with the quartery Firm in London. Uh, Mike Volkoff is on assignment this week, so I'm going to slide into his slot and have a few words with uh, the podcast gang. Guys, we've got some really juicy topics with it this week, so I thought um, we might go in reverse order. Jonathan, what is on your mind this week?
1: I've been fascinated by the Uber decision. So for those of you who were at the SCCE conference in Chicago, You'll remember I spoke with James Lynn, a former MIT uh, data scientist, and we had our crystal ball on the table and predicted a rocky year for Uber. So thankfully, that produ- uh, prediction, I think we'll probably all agree, has, uh, has, has come true. And the last installment of their difficulties has been the withdrawal of their private hire license in London. So, officially, their license expires tomorrow, as we're recording this, the 30th of September. Now, almost certainly, we're dictating this, uh, we're we're sort of dictating, we're we're doing this talk on Friday, almost certainly, Uber will be running along uh, and putting their appeal in today. And the way in which private hire licensing works in the UK is that the decision is frozen until the appeal is heard. And I've got some experience of this. I did a case back in uh, the early uh, 2000s, which is in some respects the precursor of this case. It involved a large operator where the authority in the case I had Um, tried to sort of muscle him out of the market by objecting to the age of his vehicles and we uh, successfully challenged that decision. So the uh, regulations that the TFL, the relevant licensing body, Transport for London have used are truly, truly complex. But it is one of those situations where if you, know a way around the, if you know your way around the regulations, I predict that the result will not be quick. My suspicion will be that we might have another 18 months to two years of uncertainty with Uber in London. But we do know a few things already. We already know that Uber drivers, and I was in an Uber in London this week, are saying that their fares have dropped considerably. We also know that black cabs in London, and I was in a black cab in London as well this week, we know that black cabs are saying that their fares are increasing. So I think already Uber is hurting because of this decision. And what is the decision about? Well, to operate a private hire or taxi uh, operation in London, you have to pass what's called a fit and proper test. So the organisation, in this case... um, Uh, The company, the relevant company, is called Uber London Limited. That's a subsidiary of Uber International Holding BV. Now, Uber London Limited seems to have had some management changes recently, which are uh, slightly unusual. One director, for example, was a statutory director, so appointed as a director of Uber London Limited, on the 18th of August, and she resigned 12 days later. Uh, Two directors have just been appointed again on the 18th of August, and they're the only directors of the entity at the moment. Now, there's nothing improper in that. It just suggests that there is uh, an element of turmoil, perhaps, in that entity. Uh, But that's not the basis on which TfL have taken action. They've effectively got four things that they say Uber have done wrong. Firstly, they haven't reported serious criminal offences. There are allegations, for example, of rapes that weren't reported when they should have been. Secondly, uh, the TFL don't like the way in which they're obtaining medical certificates This is a complex area set to be more complicated as well because the new UK data protection bill has specific legal provisions relating to things like medical certificates. Thirdly, it's approach to how um, criminal record checks are done on drivers. And then fourthly, and perhaps more interestingly, uh, TFL have been following these allegations that Uber have used a software application that they call Greyball, And basically, this software uh, application within the Uber program was alleged to be able to detect when things like um, mystery shopper operations uh, might be taking place from the regulatory authorities. So, allegedly, it instructed drivers to behave in a different way when... um, when they thought that regulatory or law enforcement officials were were about the place. Um, now, of course, as I say, that's uh, an allegation as to what the software uh, does. But TfL have said that uh, Uber's answers as to what Grayball did lacked clarity. Um, uh, on the, uh, for the interest of balance, we should say that it looks as if Uber's new CEO uh, Dara, I'm going to pronounce this wrongly, so I apologize, Koza Roushashi, um does seem to have picked up the ball very quickly. He uh, has made reassuring noises to Uber's staff globally. He, uh, he sounds a little bit like uh, a, a tired heavyweight boxer at times in the speech that he's made. You know, I'm a fighter, not a quitter. I'll fight with you. Uh, this sort of language. But to his credit, he does seem to be wanting to lead this personally. My understanding is he's uh, arranged to get on a plane and he's meeting with TfL on Tuesday to try and sort out what he can with them. My, My suspicion is these cases often do reach some sort of satisfactory solution if only because the appeal process can be quite significant. You know, it goes from TfL's hands into a court who effectively look at that as what's called a judicial review. So they look at whether the decision that TfL took was reasonable. Some people I have heard are saying that the limb three, if you like, particularly the allegations about the disclosure and barring checks, Uh, may not stand up to scrutiny. I don't have any special knowledge on that, Uh, but Grayball particularly might be a a difficulty for them. And and, and that's one of the things that we were talking about in in Chicago a, a year or so ago, that Uber run all sorts of things within their apps that perhaps aren't as well disclosed as they should be, and and maybe that's something else that will be on the agenda of the new CEO. And he talks in his speech about increased transparency, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and maybe that's a lesson learned for them.
0: So, Jonathan, there's quite a bit to unpack from that. Um, anytime Uber is involved in a city or a regulatory issue, there's an economic component. There is a a trade union component, obviously a political component, technological component, legal component, um, and then there's uh, the consumer component. Uh, Those of you, you, for instance, uh, who've ridden Uber and and Jay and I are big fans of Uber. Um, The I was very intrigued by the initial response from Uber, which I assume came from Uber UK, which was they attacked not only the mayor, but the city of London and the licensing bureau. And then we had this uh, very public apology from the CEO of Uber. Um, with a varied and disparate interests that are involved in this decision, um, any thoughts on uh, I guess I, I wanted to maybe draw out a little bit more of the legal basis from your experiences uh, in
1: uh, handling these types of cases. Yeah, my, my knowledge of these cases is, is somewhat his, historic, but from my point of view, it all really will turn on the li- on the reasonableness of the licensing officer. In the, in, in the case that I had, obviously, You know, my job as an advocate in the case was to prove that there was something else going on. In our case, it seemed to be a vendetta on behalf of the licensing authority against my client. There will be, uh, I assume, similar allegations made in this case. But the difficulty, I think, might well be for Uber that the uh, TFL is effectively – part of the mayor of London's uh, remit, but of course we've had a conservative mayor of London, Boris Johnson, and uh, now a Labour mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, during the time that Uber have been running. Now, some people say that Boris Johnson was too soft on Uber when they first came in. Uh, I noticed, perhaps entirely coincidentally, Yesterday, uh, at least one Uber driver being pulled over at the side of the road for a random vehicle check. Um, now, obviously, all of these things matter. If if um, if if Uber are going to attack the licensing authorities, and they can produce records of, let's say, ten vehicles having tyres without the proper thread then that will prove to have been a bad strategy from Uber's point of view. So usually I think these cases, if you're going to try and get a result, you need a sort of whatever the cliche is, you know, uh, an iron fist inside a velvet glove. You've got to have this strategy of, of looking at your legal challenge, but also being prepared to reach out to the licensing authorities. And this is where I think... Dara I'm going to call him that because he looks the type of chap who wants to be called Dara and also as I say I can't pronounce his surname but I think that's where Dara's strategy is going to be correct to, to, to sort of reach out to TFL uh, and, and and try and take the heat out of the situation go along apologize and try and work out a way of moving forward so
0: matter Jay uh, any thoughts
2: well, I don't necessarily have too many thoughts about the London action specifically, but uh, I was interested also to see this week that apparently Uber is either in the midst of or already has been exiled from Quebec as well here in North America. Um, That there are some disputes there about training requirements for Uber drivers. I will admit I have only seen this in passing, so I am not clear is Uber taking its ball and going home because they don't want the training requirements or are they being exiled because the Quebec government has said, you must do this and they can't. Um, I don't know who is dumping whom here, but I know that that's another eruption. Um, I am struck that in London, this seems to be the first time I've seen a regulator take an action more on what i'll call moral grounds where you know uber's already been kicked out of austin texas and who knows what might happen in quebec but those are more on technical grounds they weren't complying with license obligations i mean there seems to be an extra element in london of we just don't like how uber behaves itself which is different um and i'll be curious to see how that shakes out mr rosen
3: well you know it it wouldn't be me if i didn't say uh we're thinking about the shift to lift, so <laughs> that's my uh, my my little key phrase. But I I think uh, you know we're we are seeing. Uh, I, I like Jonathan's thing about the uh, the velvet glove and the fist, and, and I think it's about time that the company is changing its tact, is trying to be a bit more repentive, repentant. And looking at, they've got a lot of different areas where they've had some problems, so it's, it's good to see now that they're at least extending an olive branch and trying uh, to, you know, catch this falling life knife and not have too much of their business uh, erode away to competitors.
0: Well, all very interesting. Well, Jonathan, we'll be interested to see uh, what updates you might have from us, and we will follow this uh, quite closely. So, Matt Kelly, what is on your mind?
2: Well, these days, this week in particular, I have been thinking a lot about cybersecurity and uh, the lack thereof (laughs) (laughs) at several different uh, institutions. We had a lot of action coming out of uh, the cybersecurity and compliance world. Um, On Wednesday, I think it was, the chairman of the SEC appeared before the Senate Banking Committee to give what had been regularly scheduled testimony, which was then, um, I guess, swamped by news of, number one, the Equifax breach that happened earlier in September, and number two, the SEC's own breach, which the SEC disclosed, I want to say the week before, Clayton testified. And he will be appearing in early October in front of the House Financial Services Committee. So he's doing his tour of duty at the woodshed. Um, I wanted to talk for a moment or two about Equifax specifically, but really talk about how this is a teachable moment for the compliance community about how they can work with the IT security people at your enterprise. Because a lot of people say, yes, we should panic about cybersecurity, but they don't really know how to panic effectively. And I had some thoughts about how you can panic more effectively with some of the other people In your organization as they panic. Um, Equifax itself, I almost don't even know that it's worth talking about anymore. It's been talked about to death. Suffice to say, ever you think you should do for data breach disclosure, Equifax didn't do it. This was a mess. This was terrible. Um, We should not be surprised that they are subject to a criminal investigation right now. My big question is, so what was the chain of events around the disclosure itself which the company apparently discovered the breach in July and then senior executives were selling their stock in August and then the breach was disclosed in September um, either the executives knew about the breach and sold stock anyways which is just awful on multiple levels or these are senior executives who didn't know about the breach in which case, (laughs) why wouldn't you? This was a big deal. And I mean, the CFO was one of these people under scrutiny. In what world would a CFO not be immediately aware that you had a disastrous data breach? So questions like that. Um, I think you have a policy management concern about the Equifax breach itself, the weakness that caused it, was in open source software that um, Equifax was using, and the breach was the vulnerability in the software was discovered in March. So why didn't Equifax patch it? Why does it does it not have automated patch management as a policy? If it did, it didn't work. So how would you confirm that these kind of things do or don't work? So you know, there's the the optics and leadership part of this, and then there is the mechanics and control part of this, and Equifax flunked on both parts. Um, but that said, I actually really like the Equifax and SEC breaches for two, two of them together for the reason that they really show the changing nature of cybersecurity risk in the landscape of uh, corporate IT environments here. So. Some background so people can understand this. The, the IT environment, as IT people like to call it, uh, in, and your company, they define it in terms of layers. You have a physical layer. That's the hardware, the computers, the servers, and all of that that's actually in your office. You have the uh, network layer, which is how all of these things are connected and all of their how are they connected to your database. Then you have the application layer, and the applications are sitting on top of all of this, and this is where the risk is because applications are where your IT environment intersects with actual human beings. Some of them are employees. Some of them are some dude on the internet who's surfing by your website, but that's how that's where the front door is. It's at the application layer. and. I think the issue that compliance officers want to understand is that we've moved to web-enable all of these applications, and so the cybersecurity risks that you have have moved from the hardware, from the physical layer, and the network layer to the application layer. You know, all of your cybersecurity risks now, they reside right there. Now, that's exactly what happened with the SEC. It had a security flaw in its EGGER software, and EGGER is the application that people use because it is web-enabled, and somebody somehow exploited that default, uh, that glitch in Edgar's code to be able to commit a breach in 2016. Um, so basically, my, my point for compliance officers, you want to think about what's going on. Well, the security risks have moved to the web application layer. So has your company then also shifted your personnel, your policies, and controls? Have you shifted all of that to reflect what has shifted in the cybersecurity risk? And I'm going to guess that the answer is no. Um, What I find really interesting is if you listen to podcasts or discussions within the IT uh, security community about all of this because this is not news to the it security people um a lot of them will say that the software developers will look at and says well i just build the app and then it goes to the security guys and security guys bolt on the security at the end now let me rephrase this sentence slightly i'm the sales manager i do just come up with the sales strategy with resellers and third agents and intermediaries in emerging markets. The compliance guys go bolt the compliance stuff on at the end. Exact same dynamic, different type of risk. But when that happened with sales, the companies did respond, mostly because of regulatory pressure, but they did respond with all of these compliance efforts and whatnot. Is your company doing that for This same shift in cybersecurity risks, same kind of thing going on. And are we thinking about security by design? It's not that different than I'm sure Jonathan would say about privacy by design, which is all the rage in Europe. How do you build privacy principles in from the start? Are we building security principles in from the start? Probably not. And finally, this is my long-winded way of saying I think this is where compliance officers can have a good conversation with CISOs because you are uniquely positioned given your bolting of compliance and how does the business own the risk and all this stuff we've talked about for years. You are uniquely positioned to sit down with your CISO and tell him this security at the end strategy is a really bad idea. And so how can you get around these this, this changing threat? You know, Certainly there are some questions around Are you hiring the right personnel to, and the IT department's going to say, no, we don't have them. We don't have enough. We don't have the budget. Even though they're getting more budget increases, it's not enough. Um, And a lot of these web applications and these application layer risks, they're not even from software you're developing. They're from software somebody else has developed that some employee has downloaded, whether that's Dropbox or any other security concerns you might have from cloud providers, open source, code that has not been patched. That's what caught up with Equifax. So, you know, that's a question of policy management. It's a question of monitoring. So all of this is bundling together. That's what compliance officers, I think, need to start paying attention to. And I really do like that Equifax and the SEC had these breaches when they did, in the way they did, because it is a nice, bright spotlight on the changing nature of the risk, what compliance officers can do to help out. And just to top it off, If you want to feel even more gloomy about all of this, um, earlier this week, the Poneman Institute released its latest look at vendor risk management around IT services and cybersecurity. And no surprise, companies are not doing too well on this. Um, Here are some stats I pulled up. They surveyed 625 or so senior executives at large companies. 56% say their organization has suffered a breach thanks to one of their vendors. That is up from 49% last year. At the same time this is happening, less than half of the respondents said managing vendor risk is a priority for their organization, and only 17% rate their ability to manage these third parties as highly effective. And by the way, how many third parties are floating around on your network and touching this data or poking at your confidential information on average according to the report 470 or so that's how many third parties are looking not just at your your data like when is the cafeteria open your confidential data that you don't want Mm -hmm. to share and you know you have to have the securities and the protocols and whatnot that they're looking at that that's the average and if you're in a large financial firm it's, it's thousands you probably don't even know so we do have an awful lot of risk, vendor and uh, in-house and out-house, I suppose. Um, you know, And that's, I think, the best way for compliance officers to think about this. Is, you know, Are we addressing cybersecurity risks in the right way, given the changes that are happening? And when we're not, you guys can sit down with your CISO and talk about how you're going to get out of this jam, because we're all in the jam. That's it. So,
3: Matt, this is Jay. I've got a quick question for you. You had um, a real great piece that you put up on your um, website, Radical Compliance. And you were talking about, you know, how Clayton is approaching this from the um, SEC perspective. And my question is, how does this speak to the financial uh, grounding of our monetary system with these successive cyber attacks and hacks and with all this confidential, personal information getting out there, uh, do you see an a, a oncoming breakdown in our financial mechanism, or where do you think we're going?
2: I wouldn't describe it as a breakdown, more as um, the, the Equifax breach in particular, I think, is going to be adding more drag into an already clunky system driving down the highway. Um, you know, how many consumers really are going to see their bank accounts emptied because of Equifax and they're never going to get that money back? Probably very few. But who's going to buy all of this information are hackers who will then create these synthetic identities. That's the term that uh, cybersecurity people use, that it is. Jay Rosen's address and Matt Kelly's birthday and Tom Fox's social security number and John Jonathan Armstrong's employment history. You combine all of that into one new person and then that person opens a bank account or runs up a bunch of charges on a target uh, credit card. It's it's not a real person, but every piece of information you might try to confirm, it's confirmable because it ties back to an actual human being. And so it becomes much harder for these retailers or anybody else to confirm the identity of somebody because it kind of sort of looks like it might be somebody real, and we're under pressure here, and this is all the you know instant credit card uh, awarding that you're waiting for at the cashier's counter. So let's just give them the credit card. Um, you know, it's that kind of stuff that is going to cause, I think, a lot of trouble in the future. Um, little nibbles away at our whole economic system generally, not any big financial collapse all at once.
3: Great. Thanks for your thoughts on that. Yeah, uh,
1: can I, I, I've got a, a few thoughts on it um, as well, sure. if I may. We, we've just done a, a sort of uh, a wrap-up of the data breaches that, that Cordray's handled this calendar year, and not all that I've handled. Uh, and we're at about 60, 6-0, six data breaches that clients have asked us to help with, which for a small niche law firm, I think is a pretty big number. And we've done some back of an envelope analysis on some of them. And about 40% of those breaches, the data lost was data the organization shouldn't have had in the first place. So I think the problem's even worse. I think a lot of people are sort of Hoovering up data from all over the place. And it is this thing, these things that you've mentioned, Matt, about the fact that large corporations don't actually do that much themselves anymore. They don't book travel, they don't have HR systems in house, they don't have helplines in house, they don't have travel management in house, credit, you know, almost everything's outsourced particularly the employee part of the shop is outsourced. And and as a result, they don't know anything about data, more or less, until they lose it. And, and then they don't know how to respond because they don't know who's got it. So I think you're right. There needs to be some sort of stability uh, about this. And then that's the bad news. On the good news, I did an exercise this month for a software vendor, and they're developing some software where if the data is lost, it's hugely consequential, and in part, this project's driven by GDPR. But we I chatted with the uh, senior management of this organization, and we talked about it, and he said, okay, I'll tell you what we're going to do. You're going to come to the development kickoff with the software team, and they'll explain to you, what the software is trying to do, what we're going to do with stuff, and then we'll talk through security and privacy and data protection. And as you said, Matt, using privacy by design, a full data protection impact assessment, security is obviously a part of that, and engineer that into the product from the start. So even if you've got somebody without a brain using it, Theoretically, it shouldn't allow them to do dumb things with the data.
2: I I wholly agree. And in fact, you know, Jonathan, when you said somebody even without a brain could could use this data correctly, we shouldn't forget as we move to these more automated, um, uh-huh. this more automated world, things without a brain. That's not going to be some cheap quip. That there are going to be things without an actual brain that will be poking around at data. That's what an automated bot does. Like this is the way of the future. I am glad to hear this vendor is taking it seriously, but a whole lot more will need to be doing that. And it is not going to be easy or cheap for the foreseeable future to do it. Matt. Well, Matt, thanks for that. Uh,
0: Jay Rosen, what is on your mind?
3: Well, I've got three diagrams up on my computer screen right now. I have um, Tex Winters Triangle Offense. Uh, For many of you people from ACFE, I have the Fraud Triangle. And then I also have the um, alleged diagram from uh, the DOJ and um, the FBI about how uh, companies were using uh, the relationship between agents and athletes in schools to um, sell their sneakers so uh, I think this is a fitting topic that I got today so thanks for letting me lead this off. Uh, My family used to be in the retail shoe business in New England so I remember when we got our first pair of Nikes or Nikes and we were able to sell them in the store and um, at that time this was in the um, late 70s early 80s and um, I read a piece earlier this week by Sonny Vaccaro, who used to work with Nike and then went from Nike and went to Adidas. And the playback then was to get the uh, high school basketball players at Manchester Central High to wear your sneakers. And if the high school team wore your sneakers, there was a good chance that you would be able to sell all those other uh, kids in the high school. That moved up to college and then that moved up to pro. And, um, you know, quite often I love to throw out my line, gambling in Casablanca, that's a shock. Uh, Right now, I think we're going to have a free-for-all that we're saying payola in the NCAA, how could that happen? And, um, you know, a couple of years ago, we had this whole big FIFA scandal. And the question that I would want to pose to the group out here is, uh, you know, is this FIFA part two, that's question number one. And question number two is why was this something that was not able to be uh, handled in-house by the NCAA and it took the DOJ and the FBI to run an undercover operation? So those are the two things that are on my mind And since, uh, Tom and Matt are sports enthusiasts. I thought they might be able to jump in with their thoughts.
0: So, Matt, you want to take one or more of
2: those? Well, I'm going to admit that the the Louisville NCAA basketball uh, issue that I saw this week isn't something I've looked at too closely yet, although I think Jay raises an excellent point that why didn't the NCAA catch this early? You know, they are no strangers to misconduct. They've got an apparatus now to be able to do it, and they didn't. Uh, the other thing that I thought that, you know, Jay, when you said, is this a mini FIFA, I also remember when the Justice Department uh, cracked down on FIFA in 2014 or 15, whenever it was, the astonishment at the rest of the world, which everybody knew FIFA was corrupt, and finally the Americans are the ones who just actually go ahead and start issuing indictments and arrest warrants. Um, that they just went and did it, and I guess I'm glad that the Justice Department would take this seriously. But I, it's a very good question. It's like, I where was the compliance department for these colleges and for the NCAA? That is a, it's a big thing for them. They're supposed to be able to prevent this, I thought, and they didn't.
0: So let me take those in reverse order. And uh, in view of the fact that uh, the top movie is It, starring a clown, and one of my favorite movies, excuse me, songs is Send in the Clowns, uh, it can only lead to one conclusion, which is, the NCAA, are clowns. They are completely incompetent, incapable, and indeed have no will to do anything of this nature. They are a member-run organization who wants to beat up on the Johnny footballs and of the world and of the student-athlete who puts uh, up pictures of his football-kicking skills on YouTube to hopefully garner himself a job in the professional ranks, whether that be in the United States, Europe, or Canada. Uh, they're very good at that. They have zero ability to investigate a large school and um, put a large uh, penalty on a large school. If they investigate Ohio State, you better believe that Ohio Wesleyan is going to pay the price in terms of a penalty. They are just incompetent when it comes to investigation. So that's sort of part one. Now let me lead to part two. And, Jonathan, I'm going to pitch this to you at the, at the end because my observation is that they are tied together. And they're tied together for a couple of reasons. One is that FIFA really had no legal or regulatory oversight as any commercial business would in the United States or across the globe. So there was there was no regulatory body who could enforce something against them. Uh, I just uh, eviscerated the uh, NCAA, and hopefully people will understand why they were not capable of doing uh, anything to Louisville or any of these other people but, Jonathan, the thing that struck me uh, that is similar to FIFA is the, uh, Jay's uh, or Matt and Jay are absolutely right. Um, in addition to being shocked, simply shocked that uh, amateur athletes are being paid, it's been well known for a long time. In fact, the, the UK press really led the world, I thought, in exposing the corruption of FIFA. And is there something about uh, unique to the U.K. political system, which would allow such a robust investigative press uh, who does undercover sting operations, who gets facts, who publishes those facts, and shares that information with the government, yet you have a government that was uh, either unwilling or unable to, to move against FIFA, and then kind of what's the role of a government in a national or international sporting uh, organization, such as FIFA, but also the International Athletic Association, uh, or you name the the international body. So, I found a lot uh, to unpack from what Jay said, but also a, a really a lot going forward.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're um, I, I think you're right on a lot of fronts. I mean, I think firstly, uh, it's quite timely. I went last night uh, to the uh, Steve Hewlett Memorial Lecture in London which was presented by a guy called Nick Robinson, who's a well-known BBC journalist. It was an astoundingly good lecture. And it was in part about the history of investigative journalism in the UK and this, um, what used to be called the publish and be damned attitude, but also to their credit, something that the BBC has continued in the UAE for investigation. Uh, uh, you know, amongst others, really. And so I think that the, uh, the part of the, uh, uh, you know, part of the culture of investigative journalism is inherent in, in, in Britain. And I think that does help expose these sorts of scandals. But I think you are right. I mean, the, I think the, the culture has been that sport should regulate itself. And I think that's fine when we're talking about on-pitch activities or in-ring activities or whatever that might be. You know, we don't want the civil courts deciding who's won a boxing match necessarily, and we don't want them to decide whether the goal was over the line or not. And I think the difficulty we've got is we've started off with this, this sort of you know, culture that sport ought to regulate itself, because we've been obsessed with the consequences of in-play activity being second-guessed, and somehow we've lost the. You know, we've we've almost extrapolated that into saying, well, they can op- operate in a vacuum for their commercial affairs, and that won't be scrutinised either. And I think going forward, that's the distinction. We're going to have to draw much more clearly that with sporting bodies, they regulate the sport when the game's on for in-game stuff. But that doesn't mean to say that it, that they're free to pay bribes to secure sporting events or the Olympics or a football match or bet on it or, or whatever that might be. I think those commercial operations of the sport have to be subject to the same scrutiny as any other commercial uh, operation.
0: Well, Jay, this uh, has been a great story, and it's going to be unfolding, I think, for quite some time. And so hopefully you'll be able to give us uh, an update on that as we go forward.
3: Looking forward to it.
0: So, I'm going to just say a few words about the TELIA enforcement, FCPA enforcement action, uh, released a couple of, I guess, about 10 days ago. Uh, simply stunning. The Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission secured the largest FCPA fine in the history of the world ever, 965 million. We have the largest disgorgement at 457 million. And I would just like to maybe throw out three, um, Three, three or four little uh, topics for discussion. The first is really around FCPA enforcement itself. And uh, one of my takeaways from the TILIA enforcement action is that the Sessions Justice Department is committed to enforcing laws when when they're violated. And Sessions, uh, as my, our colleague Mike Volkoff has said, is a law and order guy. He's said he's a law and order guy. And here, the uh, nine months into the uh, Sessions um tenure as the Attorney General, we have the largest FCPA fine ever. Obviously, a large part of the work was done under a prior administration. administration. Nevertheless, the Sessions, Sessions Justice Department uh, extracted the largest fine ever. So I think when we have a clear, blatant, and systemic bribery and corruption scheme as we had with Telia, the Department of Justice will vigorously prosecute the case. Uh, the second is the... Um, role of the board of directors in this case, uh, we had uh, documented, in my mind, evidence of CEO and business unit president involvement in the bribery scheme itself. And my question was, where was the board? So to the uh, former CEO, former head of the uh, Uzbekistan business unit or Asian business unit that this company was under, and then the country manager were all criminally indicted in Sweden, uh, where was the board? Why weren't, Were they simply lied to? Uh, did they have their head in the sand? Did they close their eyes? Uh, it really speaks to me that the board really needs to probe, and part of your obligation in oversight is to ask some, some pretty detailed questions so you can get a sense. And finally, the third part is the uh, inter- international cooperation aspect, and then the Carol Brockmire, uh, former head of the SEC FCPA unit, phrase of one pie. So we literally had countries across the globe cooperating in the investigation and the enforcement uh, aspect. We have fines shared by the United States, uh, uh, the Netherlands, and uh, Sweden going forward, and... uh, one of the things that Kara talked about in her last public remarks at the uh, 2016 ACI National FCPA Conference was that companies need to be prepared to deal with a plethora of investigative and regulatory uh, uh, company uh, forces across the globe, and work to get one fine for your entire actions through cooperation, through remediation. And uh, through self-disclosure, we didn't have self-disclosure in this case. Nevertheless, the company was able to secure one fine. And it really speaks to the leadership of both the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission as the only group, prosecutorial group across the globe, which has the cachet to lead this type of effort. So with that, I would uh, throw it open to see if anyone else has some observations about the, the TOEA case or uh, anything else. And then from there, we'll move on to rants.
2: Tom, I have one question, not necessarily about Tilia, but the other day when the SEC announced that action against Alir Corporation, uh, um, a biopharma company out here in Massachusetts, um, I'm still struggling. Was this an FCPA enforcement on the books and records, or was it not? Because they fined the company, I think thirteen million, and they talked about improper payments the company made to foreign officials, but when you look at the complaint, the words Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, they don't actually ever appear in the complaint. So I'm just trying to figure out what, what happened there. Is that an FCPA thing or is it not? Now, I, I don't know if anybody has any observations. Uh,
0: it, it was in part an FCPA thing. Uh, there were two parts to it. Uh, Revenue recognition issues, so that speaks to Mm -hmm. the uh, books and records component of the accounting provisions. And then there was also ineffective internal controls regarding the recordation of offers and payments to foreign officials. So uh, books and records and ineffective internal controls component of the FCPA without evidence of a bribe having been paid.
3: And Matt, um, furthermore, they were uh, under a letter of intent to be acquired by Abbott. So my feeling is is that when Abbott was doing their due diligence, they found some problems, and they didn't want to acquire uh, an FCPA issue. So the company needed to remediate this on this own before the merger could go through.
2: Okay.
0: Jonathan, any observations of uh, the largest FCPA case ever from across the pond?
1: I think my only observation is it doesn't seem to have hit the press over here that much, which I think is somewhat surprising. You know, if we look at the column inches we had on Siemens and earlier cases, it it doesn't seem to have have garnered much attention from, from what I've seen, which I think is a bit of a surprise, really.
0: Well, gentlemen, with that, we're going to go uh, in reverse order for our rants. I'm going to save mine uh, for the last. Uh, So, Mr. Rosen from the left coast, do you have a rant for us today?
3: Uh, I don't have a rant. I just have a wish, and I'll echo what I said earlier this morning um, on our This Week in FCPA. Uh, Tonight at sundown, the uh, Jewish holiday Yom Kippur starts. It's one of the holiest days on the Jewish uh, religious calendar, and it's all about uh, making amends. And on Yom Kippur, um, any sins that have occurred between man and God are automatically absolved, but the sins between man and man cannot be absolved until we uh, ask for uh, forgiveness from the offended party. So I hope in this really uh, noisy political times that some of us can see the light and talk to each other to temper our level of discord and to speak to each other as human beings who have all rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So that is my wish for the new year.
2: Matt Kelly. Uh, Yeah, I I do have a rant. Um, My rant is tone at the top related. Uh, I have been greatly annoyed this week to see all of this news about multiple Cabinet secretaries in the Trump administration taking private charter flights here and yon. Um, we have the Health and Human Services Secretary, Tom Price. He has racked up more than a million dollars on private chartered flights uh where he was going around the world sometimes he took his wife sometimes he was attending a quote speaking event which miraculously happened to fall on a friday afternoon very close to where he would have a vacation home and then he'd fly back on monday on another occasion he had dinner with his son so that's just him then uh we know that the interior secretary greg zinke uh no i'm sorry um Interior Secretary Zinke, I don't know his first name. Um, He also had been taking military and charter flights at great expense when there were commercial flights available. Uh, And while this is not a flight-related, what I think is a bit of misconduct, I would also single out the EPA Director Greg Pruitt, who has an 18-person security detail for round-the-clock protection for him. And he is billing taxpayers $25,000 for a sound phone booth so anybody who was a fan of the 60s tv shows and you remember get smart the tv show <laughs> the had, of and, silence an, an actual cone of silence i didn't know that that was a real thing but apparently it is and we're building one for him and it's costing us twenty five thousand dollars. um so all of these guys who had spent so much time flaying previous executive administrations for profligate spending are now You know, they're taking flights to the corner store for Pete's sake, or they're building all of this, what I think is probably (laughs) unnecessary um, extravagance. And so that is poor, poor tone at the top because it's hypocrisy and people see it. And I would just close by ranting particularly about Tom Price because he did say he would reimburse taxpayers for the cost of his flights, but he is only writing a check for the amount of a commercial ticket. And the rest of the cost for these private flights, we are yet unclear as to who is going to pay for them. I I also don't know. Maybe he's reimbursing us at the economy plus rate because he decided that he's going to take an extra bag. I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. But who are you kidding? How on earth can you talk seriously about anything if this is how you conduct yourself? If it happened with the CEO, he or she would be sacked. And we have it all over the place in the Trump administration right now.
0: So I want to go in a little bit different direction, because this podcast will go up in October. And October, at the end of October, we have uh, the traditional Halloween. And during the month of October, the Turner Classic Movies are a series of classic monster movies. Uh, Frankenstein, Wolfman, The Mummy, Dracula, if you want to extend it out to The Creature of the Black Lagoon, I'm even good with that and I'm a huge fan of classic monster movies. I find them to be uh, great theater. I find them to be psychologically fascinating. The camera work and artwork is just outstanding. The acting is superb. I'd like to contrast that with the absolute abomination that came out this past summer when Universal released its second release in its uh, classic monster movie uh, uh, releases, of The Mummy. It was a piece of crap, a crap product, a crap movie, a waste of Tom Cruise, and that's really saying something to waste Tom Cruise. So, um, but it leads to the state of the U.S. movie industry, and the uh, summer receipts were down, and the movie industry can't seem to understand why. Well, the answer is simple. You put out a crap product, people are not going to go. The same with the NFL. It's not Donald Trump that's driving your ratings down. It's a crap product on the field. So you need to think about if you are a consumer product provider, which of course movie theaters and movie studios are, if you put out an inferior product, people are just not interested in going. So my rant is get on Turner Classic Movies every weekend and watch all the classic movie monsters from Universal that you can. Well, gentlemen, with that, it's been a ton of fun. I hope that uh, you have a great week, and I look forward to uh, getting the gang back together for uh, hopefully a live podcast at SCCE, Compliance and Ethics Institute in Las Vegas. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the only podcast, which takes a roundtable of top compliance practitioners and presents them to you. The Everything Compliance podcast is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance, and I hope you'll join us again on our live show from the SCCE Conference in Las Vegas in October 2017.